Can you dream of a world immune to cancer? Hello everyone, my name is Nick and I'm the host of the annual live stream for The Cure where content creators and podcasters from around the world join me to raise money for the Cancer Research Institute and Immunotherapy Research, which is training the body's immune system to fight against all forms of cancer. Over the past seven years, thanks to the power of indie podcasters and the indie podcasting community and listeners just like you listening to this right now, we have raised over $90,000. And as I record this now, the eighth annual live stream for The Cure is barreling down upon us really, really quickly in just about two weeks. So join us, please, from May 29th through June 1st for 48 hours of amazing content from people all over the world and help us fight for a world immune to cancer. And I'll now return you to your regularly scheduled programming. Thank you so, so much. And together, we can make a difference. Through dangers untold and hardships unnumbered, I have fought my way here to the castle beyond the Goblin City to take back the child that you have stolen. For my will is as strong as yours and my kingdom is as great. Oh, I always forget that last line. Hi everyone, I'm Em and welcome to Verbal Diorama episode 110, Labyrinth. This is the podcast that's all about the history and legacy of movies you know and movies you don't. And if you are listening to this on the day of release, then today is my birthday. I don't normally release episodes on a Tuesday, however, I always release an episode every year on my birthday and so this is the third annual birthday episode. So an even bigger hi and hello and welcome to you all, whether you are a returning listener, whether you're a brand new listener, we are basically here to celebrate my birthday in style and by my birthday, I mean me, M. Not the podcast, Verbal Diorama's birthday is in February. This is my actual birthday. And as I said, every year I put out a special bonus episode on my birthday, whatever day my birthday falls on. Uh, this year it is a Tuesday. Uh, there is also an episode coming out in a couple of days as well, which is the normal Thursday episode. But for the first year, you got an episode on the Iron Giant. And last year you got an episode on Jurassic Park. And this year, Labyrinth. And I tend to choose movies for the birthday episode that are incredibly important and special to me in different ways. And obviously, all of the movies that I cover are special in their own way, but only the most special get reserved for the annual birthday episode. And to me, Labyrinth is such a movie. And the previous episode to this one was, uncoincidentally, Pan's Labyrinth. Did I always intend to put them back to back? Actually, yes, I did. And not just for the reason that you think, because obviously there, there is an obvious reason why you would think to put them together. But that is not the only reason. And I'm going to talk about that a little bit later on in this episode. But really, this episode is for you guys, the people who are listening. It's something that I like to do for you, an extra episode. Basically, what I'm saying is everything I've done, I've done for you. I move the stars for no one. Here's the trailer for Labyrinth. TriStar Pictures announces the collaboration of three extraordinary talents. Jim Henson, creator of The Muppets and Dark Crystal. Oh! Where you go with a head like that? Hmm? 
George Lucas, creator of the Star Wars saga. the most innovative forces in modern entertainment, David Bowie. <laughs> Together, they will take you into a dazzling world of fantasy and adventure. There's nothing to be afraid of. A world where anything seems possible and nothing is what it seems. The world of Labyrinth. Living in an alluring dream world of fantasy and enchantment, the plucky and petulant 16-year-old Sarah finds it hard to swallow that she is once again left to babysit her baby brother, her baby brother Toby, while her father and stepmother go out. Tired by Toby's cries, Sarah wishes that the goblins would take him far away. But with Jareth the Goblin King granting her wish, young Sarah must embark on a dangerous rescue mission to confront Jareth's impenetrable, unfair labyrinth, nestled deep within an ethereal realm of sneaky creatures and eerie mystique. Can Sarah save innocent Toby before she loses him forever? Hmm, let's see, shall we? Not a huge cast in this movie, because there's very few human characters in this movie. Obviously, we have the legendary David Bowie as Jareth the Goblin King, Jennifer Connelly as Sarah Williams, Toby Froud as Toby Williams, Christopher Malcolm as Robert Williams, Shelley Thompson as Irene Williams, Brian Henson as the voice of Hoggle, Ron Muick as the voice of Ludo, David Shaughnessy as the voice of Sir Didymus, and Timothy Bateson as the voice of the Worm, who is, surprisingly, one of the standout characters in merchandise for this movie, considering he only has a couple of lines of dialogue. The screenplay is by Terry Jones, the story by Dennis Lee and Jim Henson, and it was directed by the legendary Jim Henson. I want to start this episode talking about something that, well, is not really related to Labyrinth at all, but I wanted to start with the 1939 live-action movie The Wizard of Oz. That is based on the novel by L. Frank Baum, where young Dorothy is suddenly whisked away by a tornado to the magical world of Oz. And that movie and the book has inspired many other films, and not just its spiritual sequels and remakes like Return to Oz, which absolute nightmare fuel. I'm never going to cover that on this podcast. The Wiz, Wicked or Oz the Great and Powerful. Most fantasy movies can claim to be inspired by The Wizard of Oz. In fact, The Wizard of Oz was recently named the most influential movie of all time by a group of Italian researchers who analysed 47,000 films across 26 genres. Of course, The Wizard of Oz wasn't the first story where a young girl is whisked away to a strange fantasy land. Lewis Carroll's Alice's Adventures in Wonderland was published 45 years before L. Frank Baum's story, but when it comes to cinematic adaptations of a fantasy land, not much beats The Wizard of Oz, which I absolutely will cover at some point, that is a promise. So why am I talking about The Wizard of Oz? Well, Labyrinth is clearly one of those 47,000 films inspired by the 1939 classic, as well as Jim Henson acknowledging the inspiration of the works of Maurice Sendak, writer of Where the Wild Things Are, a copy of which is featured in Sarah's bedroom. Specifically, his story Outside Over There, where a nine-year-old girl's baby sister is stolen by goblins. 
This acknowledgement of the inspiration, the labyrinth, only came after the threat of legal repercussions, which almost stopped production. Copies of Alice in Wonderland, Grimm's Fairy Tales, and of course, The Wizard of Oz can be seen in Sarah's book collection. But I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit. Every fairy tale has a beginning. So let's start at it. In 1982, the dark fantasy film The Dark Crystal was released to become the 16th highest grossing film of the year in North America, something that took creators Jim Henson and Brian Froud by surprise. They wanted to work together again, but do something lighter and more comedic than The Dark Crystal because although it was profitable and received fairly positively, especially in more recent years, it was hardly a light, fluffy, family-friendly movie of the like that Jim Henson was known for being essentially the creator of The Muppets. Froud would work on the conceptual design of their partnership and would envisage a baby surrounded by goblins. In March 1983, Henson and Froud met with Dennis Lee, a children's author who was tasked with writing a novella on which a script could be based. Lee submitted this at the end of 1983 and Jim Henson approached Monty Python's Terry Jones, who'd co-directed Monty Python and the Holy Grail and solo directed Monty Python's Life of Brian and Monty Python's The Meaning of Life. Basically, all British comedy royalty and clearly the right person for a lighter, more comedic movie. Jones was given the novella that Dennis Lee had written, but admitted that he didn't really get on with it. Instead, he took Brian Froud's conceptual drawings and wrote a script around them. But while Jones is the solo credited person on the screenplay, what we ended up with in the finished version of Labyrinth is more of a collaborative affair of Jones and several uncredited writers. Some of Jones's script, plus multiple revisions from Jim Henson, Laura Phillips, Elaine May, and executive producer George Lucas. But as I mentioned, none were credited for their work, despite the finished product being quite different from Jones's original script, where Jareth would appear to be all powerful, but as the movie goes on, it would all be a ruse to keep people from getting to his heart. The involvement of David Bowie would significantly impact not only the characterization of Jareth, but also how quickly Jareth would appear and how often Jareth would appear. In Jones's original script, Jareth would not be seen at all until Sarah reaches the centre of the labyrinth. The audience would meet Jareth as Sarah did. Jareth would be more villainous. He would enter the house in disguise and snatch the baby against Sarah's will, as well as be more amorous in his advances towards Sarah, claiming that he wants a queen and not a goblin baby. Clearly having literal rock royalty in your movie does change how their character might be involved and portrayed, but more on Bowie's involvement in a little bit. The script for Labyrinth was revised and reworked at least 25 times between 1983 and 1985, including for the inclusion of original songs, with the final shooting script ready shortly before filming began. When it came to casting, 16-year-old protagonist Sarah, auditions began in April 1984 here in the UK, where famously Helena Bonham Carter auditioned for the role, the production decided they wanted an American actress for the lead and Jane Krakowski, Yasmin Bleeth, Sarah Jessica Parker, Marisa Tomei, Laura Dern, Ali Sheedy, Maddie Corman and Mia Sara all auditioned in the months leading up to January 1985. All of these young women were between 16 to 23 years of age at the time of their audition, except Maddie Corman, who was 14. Krakowski, Sheedy and Corman were the front runners until Jim Henson saw 14-year-old Jennifer Connolly. Henson would offer Connolly the role within a week, and she would move to England the following month in February 1985 for rehearsals, which started in March 1985, and principal photography, which started that April. 
The character of Jareth started out as a puppet and he evolved to a human character to counterbalance the other main human character of Sarah. While Sarah would be young, naive, a dreamer and innocent, Jareth would be charismatic, sensual, wild and unpredictable. The world of childhood versus the world of adulthood, which would be a running theme of the movie as Sarah transitions between them. And they wanted a Heathcliff or a Rochester type. Jim Henson always wanted to cast a rock star in the role of Jareth, someone who could convey an air of mystery, a little raw sexuality, but who could also command the screen and give a sense of showmanship. Originally a non-musical role, which Henson considered for Simon McCorkindale or Kevin Kline, Henson then decided an actual rock star would be the perfect antithesis for a sweet, innocent teenage girl. Because what sweet, innocent teenage girl doesn't want a rock star? Pretty much all of them. Sting had acting credentials, having starred in Quadrophenia and Dune. Prince had the lead role and soundtrack for Purple Rain under his belt. Mick Jagger had several film credits and Michael Jackson was the biggest pop star in the world and had starred in aforementioned The Wiz. But it was David Bowie who'd received a Saturn Award for his performance of The Man Who Fell to Earth in 1976, who Henson wanted, mainly for his raw sexuality, his mysteriousness, his maturity and his allure. Henson met with Bowie in 1983 while Bowie was on his Serious Moonlight tour and would continue to pursue him, sending him script revisions. They met again in June 1984 where Henson showed him The Dark Crystal as well as Brian Froud's concept art. It would involve puppets, Bowie could write the music and perform and he could have free reign as well as this was a movie that could appeal to a family audience. And David Bowie was hooked by this intelligent funny script and signed on in February 1985. This was a couple of months before filming actually began. Jareth was supposed to be a young girl's dream of a rock star with the ego, the swagger stick being his microphone and yes, the tight trousers. Brian Froud admitted that that was intentional because Bowie clearly had it, so why not flaunt it? And baby Toby, Toby Froud, the son of designer Brian Froud, got the job. And while the character was originally called Freddy, baby Toby would only respond to his own name, so the character was renamed Toby. Froud would go on to work at Weta Workshop and at Leica Studios, both of which I've mentioned countless times on this podcast before. He most recently worked as a sculptor on Missing Link and as design supervisor on The Dark Crystal Age of Resistance. He's currently working on Guillermo del Toro's stop-motion adaptation of Pinocchio, and that is not the only link to Guillermo del Toro in this episode either. But I feel like I can't talk about this movie without talking about the puppets, because if you do listen regularly, you will know how much of a fan I am of puppet work, how much I enjoy practical effects, I think pretty much everyone knows that, but... I love puppets. I love the tangibility of puppets, the way that as soon as a puppeteer starts working with a puppet, that puppet will come to life and that puppet is a character in its own right. And I find that so fascinating that human brains can kind of switch off between, well, that's not real to that is completely real. That's that's not a puppet. That's actually a real character. And that's one of the things I love the most about Labyrinth is that it's obviously full of puppets and clearly all these puppets had to be made and we're not just talking about the main puppet characters like Hoggle, Sididimus and Ludo but also all of these background puppets, the goblins in Jarrah's throne room, all of the puppets in the actual labyrinth itself. The dance magic scene contained over 48 puppets operated by 52 puppeteers and eight people in goblin costumes. All of those puppets had to be made, they had to be operated 
This was actually a huge movie. It was a hugely choreographed movie as well. To have all of those puppets on screen, to have all of the puppeteers hidden, and for none of the magic to be revealed on screen. The majority of the puppeteers and voice actors are from other famous Jim Henson productions too, like The Muppets and Fraggle Rock. We're talking industry veterans like Frank Oz, Dave Goles, and Steve Whitmire. It was a family affair for Jim Henson with his son Brian and daughter Cheryl, both involved in the puppet work as well. Cheryl Henson would go on to become president of the Jim Henson Foundation, supporting innovation in contemporary American puppet theatre. And Brian Henson, who also provided the voice of Hoggle, is currently the chairman of the Jim Henson Company. Hoggle was the most complex of all the puppets. He was played by six people. Shari Weiser was in the suit, Brian Henson did the voice and mouth puppetry and four others used remote controls to move his face. Ludo weighed £75 and was performed by Ron Muick and Rob Mills and they took turns in the suit to avoid exhaustion. A tiny camera in Ludo's horn would display on a small monitor inside his head so the actor would know what was around him because otherwise the actor was completely blind. The size of the puppet didn't matter to the complexity though because even the smallest main character, Sir Didymus, had problems. Didymus rode a real dog and a dog puppet and I still think it's brilliant to this day that it's clearly a dog puppet but it kind of doesn't matter because it's just so much fun. When Didymus rode the real dog, the Didymus puppet head was controlled by radio control so the character still talks. When crossing the bog of eternal stench, the dog kept slipping off the hydraulically controlled stones. Luckily, the dog wore a harness so it didn't fall into the water, but apparently the dog fell more times than it actually managed to cross. So the shot that we see in the movie is one of the very rare moments when the dog didn't actually fall off the stones. The Hoggle puppet, as there was only one of him, famously got lost on a flight after the movie wrapped, ended up in Scottsboro, Alabama, in the lost property, where he was found rotting. If I remember, I'll put some pictures on social media of the state that they found Hoggle in. It's a little bit distressing, actually, especially if you're a fan of puppets, to see a character like that with basically the puppet skin rotting off. It's not nice. He was fully restored. He remains in their unclaimed baggage museum. He is on permanent display there. He is a permanent fixture in that museum. And you can go and visit him if you want to. So if you're ever in Scottsboro, Alabama, then go and visit the Unclaimed Baggage Museum and you can actually visit the genuine Hoggle Puppet. The Fireys is admittedly a scene that has probably aged the worst, but it was still highly complex. Each Fiery was at least two puppeteers per character. Each puppeteer wore black and each Fiery was chest height. Everything had to be carefully choreographed so puppeteers didn't cross in front of each other and block another fiery. The camera was on a special digitally controlled dolly to repeat the same moves more than once. This meant they could shoot the set in black and then the same scene with the actual set. Two different pieces of film, one with the actions and one with just a set and Industrial Light and Magic then came on board to optically combine the two pieces. David Bowie and Jennifer Connolly at first found the experience of working with the puppets to be quite difficult because the voice wouldn't actually come from the puppets, it would come from offset. And it's hard to naturally interact with something that doesn't actually make the sound. But they soon got used to it. And David Bowie is obviously an incredible performer, but he can't juggle glass balls. Michael Moshen ranked as one of the world's leading jugglers, choreographed and performed the scene where Jareth juggles with crystal balls. He actually crouched behind him and completely blind performed the tricks that you see on screen. 
There's so many mind-blowing facts about this movie. That is one of the most brilliant. Because if you didn't know that, then you genuinely would think it was David Bowie doing it. So the puppets were built a year and a half prior to shooting. And the sets were, for the time, large and ambitious. The Shaft of Hands sequence, which is also called Helping Hands, was a 30-foot high rig with a 40-foot vertical camera track. 75 performers gave the scene 150 live hands, plus there were 200 foam rubber hands there as well. Jennifer Connolly was strapped into a harness and lowered down. It was an incredibly dangerous scene to film because if she'd actually put her hands in the wrong place, she could have potentially injured herself or severed a finger as she essentially fell down this shaft. The Goblin City set was built at Stage 6 at Elstree Studios and required the largest panoramic backcloth ever made. But the biggest challenge was the forest, which required 120 truckloads of tree branches, 1,200 turfs of grass, 850 pounds of dried leaves, 133 bags of lichen and 35 bundles of mossy old man's beard. Most of the filming, which lasted five months, took place at Elstree Studios, as well as West Wickham Park in Buckinghamshire. The scenes of Sarah running back home in the rain were shot in Upper Nyack, Pyrmont and Haverstraw, New York. Choreography in the movie was supervised by Cheryl Gates. And you may think, who? But in order to distinguish her work on Labyrinth to her very famous other role on Star Trek The Next Generation, Gates McFadden used her real name of Cheryl to work on Labyrinth. And she had originally been hired to play Sarah's mother. But due to British labour laws, she was told she couldn't act in the movie. But she could come over and work as a choreographer. So that's basically what she did. Shooting wrapped on the 8th of September 1985. And because most of the visual effects were in camera, when it came to post-production, as I mentioned, ILM worked on the fiery scene. Animators Larry Yeager and Bill Croyer created the first ever realistic CGI animal used in the movies with the owl in the titles. And the owl itself would obviously be a mix of CGI owl, puppet owl and a real owl as well. Executive producer George Lucas had an uncredited role in the script, as well as also in the edit suite. He actually worked on the final cut of the movie with Lucas and Henson alternating those duties. Um, there really are so many little references in this movie to other movies, to characters in this movie. Almost all of the characters can be found in Sarah's bedroom, including herself dressed up for the ballroom scene, which, because it only contained humans, was probably the easiest scene to film. But even Disney's Robin Hood is shown in the movie. And again, a really fascinating fact that kind of blew me away a little bit was the actor who played Robin Hood in Disney's Robin Hood was Brian Bedford. He would actually end up passing away the same exact day as David Bowie did on the 10th of January 2016. And then in another weird link to Robin Hood, four days later, the brilliant Alan Rickman who was famously in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, would also pass away. And this was the movie that really introduced me to David Bowie. I mentioned that in the previous episode that I did on Pan's Labyrinth, where I said, well, this is the reason why I want to talk about Labyrinth. And when I was a kid, I didn't know that he was a rock star because he was always just Jareth to me. And the music kind of came after Jareth. So when I was a kid, I think that I thought he was an actor who would basically become a rock star. I didn't realise that he was a rock star first who transitioned into acting and obviously was really, really good at it. This is the piece of work that I associate more with David Bowie than pretty much anything else that he's ever done, which 
probably sounds a bit stupid if you kind of look at it now, you know, as a woman of my age to have this association to this rock star where I place this above literally every other piece of work he's ever done, any piece of music he's ever done. Labyrinth is is higher than that. But I think for a lot of kids who grew up in the millennial era, this was their first introduction to David Bowie. It wasn't just me. And I did have a huge crush on David Bowie from this movie. And I didn't understand why at the time, because obviously I was just a kid. Why would you understand? I mean, now I I really do understand. But, But back then I really didn't. Speaking of crushes, let's move on to the obligatory Keanu reference. So this is a part of the podcast where I try to link the movie that I'm featuring with Keanu Reeves. And I did think about this one for a little while. And I technically used this link in the episode on Alien, but it is a slightly different version of that link. So I mentioned about Keanu starring in the remake of The Day the Earth Stood Still. He starred in that movie with Jennifer Connelly. And so that's the link. Keanu starred in a movie with Jennifer Connelly and Jennifer Connelly is in this movie. And obviously Jennifer Connelly has gone on to have an amazing career and a hugely acclaimed career as well. She has featured in this podcast before episode 61 of this podcast, which is The Rocketeer, which is one of my favourite roles of hers, as well as this one. She won an Oscar for 2001's A Beautiful Mind, and she also married the absolutely wonderful Paul Bettany. So literally, Jennifer Connelly has had the perfect life, really, hasn't she, as far as everyone's concerned. She got to work with David Bowie, she got to work with Keanu Reeves, and she got to marry Paul Bettany. And she's absolutely gorgeous as well. So, yeah, a charmed life for Jennifer Connelly. Obviously, the music of Labyrinth is one of its most defining things. And like I say, these songs were the first David Bowie songs that I really ever heard. So this was his music to me. So obviously the soundtrack album is Trevor Jones's score. That is split into six tracks for the soundtrack. So there's Into the Labyrinth, Sarah, Hallucination, The Goblin Battle, 13 O'Clock and Home at Last. Bowie recorded five songs for the film. Underground, Magic Dance, Chilly Down, As the World Falls Down and Within You. Underground features on the soundtrack twice, first in an edited version that was played over the film's opening sequence and secondly in full. The only song Bowie did not perform lead vocals on is Chilly Down. That was performed by Charles Organs, Richard Bodkin, Kevin Clash and Danny John Jules, the actors who voiced the fireys. A demo of Chilly Down under its original title Wild Things performed by Bowie, was actually leaked in 2016, shortly after his death, by Danny John Jules. Being a Jim Henson production, featuring music by David Bowie, Labyrinth's release was highly anticipated. Backstage articles were featured in the New York Times, highlighting the scale of the movie and that it was family-friendly. An hour-long documentary titled Inside the Labyrinth was broadcast on TV. Bowie himself didn't actively promote the film, but he did produce a music video for Underground, and Billboard also advertised the movie's soundtrack. Additionally, there was merchandise available for this movie. There were toys, games, puzzles, and the characters even toured the US, uh, several cities as well. Here in the UK, it had a royal charity premiere on the 1st of December, 1986. It was attended by the Prince and Princess of Wales. And while David Bowie wasn't in attendance, Jim Henson, Brian Henson, Brian Froud, Jennifer Connelly, and Ludo, most importantly, were all there. But... It had previously been released in the US. So we got it in December 1986. It was released in the US on the 27th of June 1986, where it opened 8th at the US box office, 
The following week, it would drop to 13th. And this was when Big Trouble in Little China opened at 12th. That is episode 85 of this podcast, by the way. And it always surprises me because I go on to Box Office Mojo and I always check financials and release information on Box Office Mojo. And I always get quite excited when I'm researching one episode and another episode kind of pops up because you would not expect that Labyrinth and Big Trouble in Little China were out at the same time, but there was literally a week between them. In the US, it would gross $12.7 million against its $25 million budget. It would reportedly make an additional $12 million internationally. And as I mentioned, The Dark Crystal hadn't done as well as they'd hoped. And so Jim Henson was pretty certain that Labyrinth had all of the ingredients for success. And it did have all the ingredients for success, but just not at the box office in 1986. Jim Henson was devastated by the box office failure of Labyrinth. He died a few years later in 1990, making this the last movie that he directed. After his death, he was inducted into the Hollywood Walk of Fame in 1991, and he became a Disney legend in 2010. Before he died, he was made aware of the movie becoming a cult classic. And when we talk about cult classics, I mean, Labyrinth really is the epitome of a cult classic. A movie that at the time of its release, it struggled, people didn't really understand it, the public didn't really warm to it in the cinemas, but it has since found a real resurgence, firstly on VHS and then DVD and Blu-ray. Legions of fans are still interested in the movie. They still go and see Labyrinth when it comes to the cinemas. And I think that's because it's rooted in themes that we can all understand and that we've all experienced. The wanting to remain in perpetual childhood, wanting to keep imagination alive and wanting to be the hero of your own story as well as kind of having a reasonably innocent yet slightly weird pseudo-romantic element. Everyone knows the songs, everyone knows the costumes, and Labyrinth fans are still passionate. Even fanfiction is still booming. Fanfiction.net currently has almost 10,000 Labyrinth-based stories on its site, and I think that goes to show that the imagination that Labyrinth wanted to cultivate is still there for legions of people, legions of fans who were so passionate about this story. And as I said, Labyrinth has always sold well. I have it on Blu-ray at the moment. I don't, I never did have it on VHS actually, weirdly. It's one of those that is often on TV here in the UK, but it did sell well on VHS and rentals and DVD. So a sequel has been mooted for years with the title Curse of the Goblin King used as a placeholder. It hasn't found a sequel in film form just yet. I'm going to talk about that in a little bit, but many graphic novels have popped up in recent years. There's a four-volume manga-style comic sequel called Return to Labyrinth, which details Sarah and Toby's lives over a decade later. After the events of Labyrinth, Sarah is now a teacher and Toby is a teenager who has no recollection of being taken by the Goblin King, but notices that all of his wishes keep coming true. Toby is lured back into the labyrinth and Jareth names him the heir to the Goblin Kingdom. It was published between 2006 and 2010, written by Jake T. Forbes and illustrated by Chris Lai, with cover art by Koyu Shuri. An unreleased graphic novel about Jareth becoming the Goblin King was announced by Arkea and the Jim Henson Company. Other published works by Arkea include Hoggle and the Worm in 2010, Sir Didymus's Grand Day Out in 2013, Labyrinth 30th Anniversary Special in 2016, Labyrinth Coronation in 2019 and Labyrinth Masquerade in 2020. 
Brian Froud has also expressed a wish to see Labyrinth on stage and the Jim Henson Company was working on one as late as 2018, but nothing more has come out about that since. And in 2016, Guardians of the Galaxy co-writer Nicole Perlman announced that she had been hired to write a sequel to Labyrinth. I say sequel, I mean more spin-off. Fede Alvarez was announced to direct with Jim Henson's daughter Lisa Henson as producer. Alvarez stepped down from the movie in April 2020 and in May 2020, Scott Derrickson, who directed another Marvel property, Doctor Strange, was confirmed to replace Alvarez as director with Maggie Levin writing the script. No idea if this is a reboot, a direct sequel or a spin-off. Although, as I said, when Nicole Perlman was involved, she insisted that her script was a spin-off. And I feel like Labyrinth is one of those properties we don't need to go back. We don't need to know what happened next for Sarah and Toby. We don't need a spin-off to this movie, but this is Hollywood and so we probably will get one. And it probably isn't going to be as good because they're probably going to have CGI and it's just going to be awful. <laughs> I'm sure it's not. I'm sure it's going to be great. But... One thing I will say is if anyone in the production of this new Labyrinth movie is listening, make it puppets, make it practical. That's what the people want. If you're going to do a sequel to a movie that literally has the vast majority, like 99.9% .9 practical effects and puppet work, then you need to make the sequel puppets. Look at what The Dark Crystal Age of Resistance did. Look how beautiful that series was with its use of puppet work. Make the sequel to Labyrinth like that and people will love it. Don't make it CGI. I'm telling you this now. This is free advice. Now, normally at this point, I would go to social media and I'd say, patrons and people on social media, what do you think about this movie? However, because this is a special episode, people know that it's coming, but I've not actually asked for any thoughts. So I've not asked the patrons and I've not asked on social media. So basically, you're just going to get my thoughts <laughs> this episode because it's my birthday. So this is the one episode of the year where I am allowed to just give you my thoughts. So that's what I'm going to do. And the way that I look at Labyrinth, Labyrinth is a traditional coming of age story. It's also a traditional fantasy story. It's also a traditional fairy tale story. And it's basically about Sarah's tricky transition from childhood and the childlike endeavours and dreams that you have as a child to womanhood and sexuality. And Jareth is designed to be a sensual and tempting character. He is supposed to be the goblin version of a rock star. And he is. And as I said, this was my first introduction to David Bowie, tight trousers and all. I didn't know his music. I only knew him as Jareth. So... This movie will always be special to me as the first thing that introduced me to David Bowie. And then I started listening to his music. And as I said, I suspect that's the case for a lot of millennials. And of course, David Bowie's death in 2016 wasn't just a sad day for the music industry. It was a sad day for the movie industry as well. David Bowie is not just a rock star. He is a movie star. His work has touched so many people. He was an artist, he was an icon, he was a pop culture pioneer. He was constantly reinventing his image. But to me, he was and always will be Jareth. Any actor that they cast as Jareth in a Labyrinth sequel, prequel, remake, whatever they want to do, is not going to be David Bowie. And that is always going to be very, very sad. But it's also nice that we get this. We get to keep this version of David Bowie. For us millennials, as kids growing up and seeing this character, we get to keep him as that character. And this is kind of despite the fact that the character himself essentially is in a throne room full of goblins. And then you think, well, 
if he's stealing babies and turning them into goblins after 13 hours, are all of these goblins previously babies? <laughs> and now that is also despite when you view this movie as an adult and you see the kind of almost uncomfortable framing of Jareth as a villain, a lover, and potentially also a child abuser. I kind of don't really look at it in that way. There are many similarities though between Pan's Labyrinth and Labyrinth, and it's another reason why they're together in the roster episodes. Both are about the juxtapositions between childhood and adulthood, innocence and experience, being good and being bad. I said last episode, obedience versus disobedience. If Sarah obeys Jareth, he will be her slave, she just needs to fear him and love him, etc, etc. Just as if Ophelia obeys her stepfather or obeys her mother, she will be okay in Francoist Spain. And if she obeys the fawn, she will be reunited with her real father. But both Sarah and Ophelia realise that they have to make their own way in this world and that sometimes creatures are out to get them. That not everyone in life will be kind and nice and friendly. Sometimes people lie. Both have baby brothers that they need to protect. Both are on the cusp of childhood and adulthood, although arguably Sarah more than Ophelia. But while Sarah chooses the real world, she chooses to grow up and become an adult. And she also keeps some small semblance of her fantasy world with her. Ophelia's choice is taken from her by her stepfather. Both girls could arguably be making up their fantasy worlds, but also both refuse to conform to what's expected of them. Both of these stories are fairy tale princess stories. Sarah goes from girlhood to womanhood and is offered to be the queen of this goblin world and she refuses it and Ophelia becomes the literal princess of the underworld. And that's why I wanted to talk about Labyrinth straight after Pan's Labyrinth. Not just for the similar title but the story of empowerment and subverting expectations that are held within both of these movies. I mean and that and they're both really good movies as well. They're both stunningly beautiful. They are released 20 years apart but I think they complement each other really well. I don't think, though, that David Bowie's soundtrack would quite work in Pan's Labyrinth, though, which is unfortunate. <laughs> but, I mean, you can't have everything, I guess. Thank you for listening to this special birthday episode. I could have talked for so much longer about Labyrinth, but I didn't want this episode to be huge. So I'm just going to keep it quite short. But I would love to hear your thoughts on Labyrinth and whether you agree with my idea on the links between Labyrinth and Pan's Labyrinth, because... I really do feel like, as a double piece, if you were going to sit and watch two movies back to back, then take away the very similar titles, but I think the themes and the stories, I think they complement each other really well. If you did enjoy this episode, obviously there are many other episodes that you could listen to, but you can also help Verbal Diorama grow and be noticed by others by leaving a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser or wherever you found this podcast. You can retweet or like posts on social media, or you could simply just tell your friends or family about this podcast. Especially because it's my birthday, it would be really cool to have special birthday gifts of ratings and reviews and retweets and telling your friends, even though I'm not going to know if you've told your friends, but that would be really cool if you would. If you did like this episode on Labyrinth, you might also like one of the following complimentary episodes and this was really hard to choose actually because there are so many episodes that are kind of set in a fantasy realm that I think would really work and there's also a lot of episodes that I've done on puppet movies as well so I very almost suggested Little Shop of Horrors which is similarly brilliant puppet work 
but I didn't think it kind of worked as a complimentary piece. But I would recommend episode 35, Spirited Away. Again, it's kind of following this Wizard of Oz tradition of a young girl who gets whisked to a magical world and has to kind of find her way through. It is a Hayao Miyazaki movie. It's a Studio Ghibli movie. And you should absolutely watch it because it's one of the best movies that they've done. Episode 49, The Muppets. Obviously, we're talking about Jim Henson and we're talking about Frank Oz in this episode. And The Muppets is obviously a Disney movie. It came after the Disney acquisition of The Muppets from the Jim Henson company. However, it is a really sweet movie and it does have some really good puppet, some really good puppet work in it. And as long as you kind of suspend your disbelief about the movie, then I think it works really well. I'm also going to suggest episode 63, Coraline, which also I suggested for the last episode, Pan's Labyrinth. I think I also just suggested Spirited Away last episode as well. Yes, I did. Only because it kind of follows that similar theme of a young girl who gets whisked away. And it's a Leica movie. And obviously, Toby Froud worked at Leica. So it all links really lovely. And obviously, episode 109, Pan's Labyrinth. For all of the reasons I've already mentioned. So I'm not going to go through them again. But I really do feel like it is a very perfect companion to this movie. As is pretty much any of these movies. As always, give me some feedback. Let me know if I got the episode recommendations right or if you think something else sort of worked. But otherwise, Little Shop of Horrors is pretty perfect as far as episodes go because I really love that episode. And as far as musicals go because it is one of the best musicals ever. So yeah, check out Little Shop of Horrors too. The next episode, if you're listening to this on the day of release, which is on the Tuesday, two days after that, X-Men 2 is going to be out. So that is technically the next episode. It's coming out in a couple of days. It is the first episode of what I've dubbed Sequel Temba, which is a celebration of brilliant sequels to existing episodes. I'm starting with X-Men 2. I covered the original X-Men movie back in episode 56. And if you want to know what's after X-Men 2, then you'll find out soon, partner. You can follow me on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram and Letterboxd. If you want to support this podcast, you can do so at verbaldiorama.com slash Patreon. And as always, a huge thank you to the patrons of Verbal Diorama. I could not do this podcast without their support, without their love, without their guidance and without their comments. And basically, being honest, without the funds that they give to help this podcast, to help me buy new software and equipment and all sorts of stuff like that. So I am eternally grateful to these wonderful people, to Simon E, Sharday, Hardy L, Claudia, Simon B, Laurel, Derek, Jason, Kristin, Kat, Andy, Mike, Griff, Luke, Emily, Michael, Scott, Mark, Brendan, Ian, Lisa, Dan and Sam. You remind me of the babe. What babe? The babe with the power. What power? The power of voodoo. Who do you do? Do what? Remind me of the babe. <laughs> I probably could say that faster, but I'm not going to. Merch, verbaldiorama.com slash merch. No one cares about merch though. If you want to get in touch, it's verbaldiorama at gmail.com. You can also pop over to verbaldiorama.com. You can also pop over to filmstories.co.uk. You can check out articles. You can order copies of the magazine. But it's my birthday, so I'm just going to finish. <laughs> and yeah, if you happen to be online, then say hi. Wish me a happy birthday. That would be awesome. But if not, I just hope that you enjoy this episode. And if you want to chat to me about Labyrinth, then please feel free. And finally, through dangers untold and hardships unnumbered, I have fought my way here to the castle beyond the Goblin City to take back the child that you have stolen. For my will is as strong as yours and my kingdom is as great. You have no power over me.
Bye. Movie